0: The best quote that was ever said about emergency medicine is that it's the 15 most interesting minutes of every other specialty.
1: Welcome to Ditch the Lab Coat with Dr. Mark Bonta, a podcast that examines health issues with a critical eye grounded in scientific skepticism. Disclaimer. The Ditch the Lab Coat podcast is exclusively meant for general informational purposes and should not be regarded as a substitute for professional medical services, including medicine or nursing. It does not create a doctor-patient relationship, and any reliance on the information provided in the podcast or linked materials is at the user's own risk. The content is not intended to replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The expressed opinions belong solely to the host and guests, and they do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the hospitals, clinics, universities, or any other organization associated with the host or guests. Well, folks, I can barely contain my excitement at having had secured Dr. David Carr in the studio for today's episode entitled State of Emergency. David Carr is a professor in the Division of Emergency Medicine and Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. He is an emergency physician and clinical investigator at the University Health Network and Mackenzie Health Hospital, which are two giant hospital conglomerates in the Toronto area of Canada. He is also the continuing professional development lead in the tri division of emergency medicine at the University of Toronto. He has lectured internationally over fifty times in twenty-two different countries. He has been the recipient of multiple undergraduate and postgraduate clinical teaching awards. And in two thousand twenty-three and two thousand twenty-four, he was recognized in the list of Toronto's top emergency physicians. During the baseball season, he works at the Rogers Centre as the medical director of stadium medicine for the Toronto Blue Jays. And in two thousand 2010, he pursued his passion serving as an emergency physician in the Athletes Village for the Winter Olympics in Vancouver. Since 2010, he has co-authored the chapter on occlusive arterial diseases in Tintali's emergency medicine textbook. And I know him as one of the most passionate clinicians and teachers. I see him in action in the emergency department at Toronto General Hospital. And this guy knows his stuff. He cares deeply about patients. He loves working in teams and he is experienced. Today's podcast is titled State of the Emergency Department. Now, I know I'm reaching out to a global audience, but to those of you who are familiar with the situation in Canada, you know that our emergency departments are in dire straits. Our waiting rooms are full. Our hallways are clogged with sick patients. We've run out of rooms to admit patients to and to see them, that patients are lining the hallways, being stripped of their dignity and privacy. To those who work on the front lines of which David Carr is one, they experience this firsthand on a daily basis, and we get into that experience today. We also talk about some of the misconceptions and misnomers that are believed to be associated with this clogging of emergency departments. We talk about what an emergency really is, and how emergencies are truly in the eye of the beholder. We break down what the actual existence and work of an emergency physician looks like, and some of the things that may Make this job very, very challenging. One quote that he wanted to share with all of us in the listening audience before we dive deep into this episode is that in emergency medicine, we sort out the sinister from the benign. So we often end up telling patients what diagnosis they don't have as opposed to the diagnosis they have. So here to give you his diagnosis on the state of the emergency departments is none other than Dr. David Carr. As an emergency doctor, is it uh, the same as what I see on those Netflix shows? All the good stuff's the same, but uh,
0: all the bad stuff isn't on TV. It doesn't make uh, television stuff.
1: So what's the good
0: stuff, and what percentage of your day is the good stuff? You know, I think we all train to be like resuscitational experts and to look after sick people and to do heroic things. The reality is our work reflects the medical system in our society, and... Now, a lot of what I'm doing is primary care, and a lot of what I'm doing is really trying to advocate for a a marginalized population and, and function as almost like a homeless shelter in a cold winter climate.
1: So what was your training? Like, what does an emergency medicine doctor train? Like, what do you train to do? Fix ruptured hearts and aortas? Yeah, I wish. I, I think we fix to do a lot of diagnosis.
0: I think it's a lot about um, telling people what they don't have as opposed to telling people what they have. But when we tell people what they have, often it's a very sinister condition. It could be as simple as like an appendicitis, but it could be as serious, as you said, a ruptured aorta, a heart attack, a stroke. So, you know, the best quote that was ever said about emergency medicine is that it's the 15 most interesting minutes of every other specialty.
1: Awesome. And so in a shift, right, you do a shift of what, eight hours, 10 hours? Yeah, about eight hours tops Yeah, on average. So in an eight-hour shift, how many patients do you generally see on average, and how many of those patients end up having those kind of blood-pumping, exciting presentations on an average shift?
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends where you work. I work in an academic center. I also work in a community center, and the volumes through those centers are very different in terms of based on acuity and based on the system structure and teaching or non teaching. So you may see anywhere from 20 to 50 patients, depending where you work. And acuity is also based where you work. I think that there are some shifts where, usually in most of these emergency departments, you can't just for eight hours go full on resuscitation, go, go, go. So usually you start out in some shift where you're dealing with the most critically ill patients, and then you cascade down into a minor fast track area where you're doing a lot of cuts and bruises and broken bones and lacerations and abscesses. So Mark, a long time ago, I used to say that uh, you get to this point where nothing that walks in the door scares you anymore. And uh, I've gotten to that point. And you might go through a whole shift and nothing is overly new or overly exciting. It's just kind of what you do. Like, like any career, emergency medicine seems super excited to the common folk, but it's a lot of just the same presentations over and over again that doesn't kind of get you super jacked up like the way the media portrays. But
1: it sounds like it's changed. Like you mentioned, you're doing a lot of advocacy work for marginalized populations. And uh, you're not talking about walking into your shift and seeing, you know, a gunshot wound and a person whose guts are hanging out by and large. Should they just change the name of the emergency department to place you go when you need help? Like, would that be a more appropriate name?
0: Yeah, I mean, I like that you're referring it to an emergency department because we've been fighting to not call it an emergency room because we've long advanced that this is no longer a room. It's a department. The challenge is that the nature of our work has changed. So I've been doing this for just over 20 years. When I first started, we had four doctors a day. We had no advanced practice providers like nurse practitioners, physician assistants. Now we have like 12 doctors a day, two or three nurse practitioners, two or three physician assistants, and we still can't meet up with the needs. And we now have used all the real estate we had, so the same space, but we've now filled our hallways with just bed after bed after bed, which never was something we needed because we just can't seem to take care of this baby boomer, this kind of geriatric tsunami that's hit most of the world, we don't have the resources and infrastructure in Ontario and in all of Canada to look after patients
1: properly. My job has changed. Well, when I worked with you at Toronto General, I love uh, walking through the main door. And I, Actually, at all hospitals I work at, I like walking through the waiting room of the emergency department to start my day. It gives me a good pulse, right, for the vibe, for who's in the waiting room, what's the average age, how sick do people look, how frustrated do people look, gives me a sense of how long they've been waiting. That generally reflects the attitude and... Uh, kind of facial expressions of those working in the, in the emergency department. It gives me an idea as an admitting doctor, right, as an internist, what my day is going to be like. But why can't you just go out in the waiting room and kind of look at people and say, that needs a Band-Aid, go home. You can go call your family doctor for that. Like, why can't you just filter out the waiting room? Sadly, we do for some stuff. Like it
0: used to be a big deal that we wanted to end hallway medicine, and now we're trying to end waiting room medicine because we are seeing people in the waiting room because that's a physical space that's untapped. It's certainly terrible for patients. We're trying to use pieces of the triage area to see patients that are quick one-touch-and-goes. But again, 20 years ago and 20 years beyond, and older physicians and me will talk about a day where the nurse at triage would say, this is something that can wait. Let me call your family doctor because family doctors were typically the ones who did emergency medicine really before the specialty evolved. And they would call Dr. Smith and say, hey, just want to let you know your patient's here. Is there any way you could see her or him later today or tomorrow? And they use judgment. And now I think with the medical legal milieu, everyone who has a complaint gets registered, even if it's the fourth time in that day. We have people who register multiple times a day and really are just looking for someone to talk to or a warm place to be. So unfortunately, the environment has taken away the ability to just kind of say, you don't need to be here. And that's very different than the European and global environment where, one, there's really been a fallout and collapse of the primary care system, but also emergency medicine is something that people have had to rely on as a
1: default and don't use it really for emergencies anymore. So in Canada, right where you practice, anyone can go to the emergency department, they can't get turned away they can get registered. Like what you're saying is if someone registered four times in a day, they would register for chest pain or belly pain or whatever, get their blood pressure and pulse taken. The nurse would triage them, and we have a triage system that kind of dictates how severe someone's presenting complaint is and how quickly they would get seen. But they would then come in, get seen, leave, and walk back around and register with a different complaint. That actually happens?
0: Yeah, for a small subset of the population who unfortunately has a sad kind of story. I don't think that's the the environment. But your first part, forgetting the final element of coming back, is that's the way it works. People self-select. I mean, it's very different in a lot of countries and a lot of systems where it's a lot of referral-based care. So people see have access to the primary care and expanded hours and are sent into the emergency department or they come by ambulance or something in a true emergency. Our system is very much as you go. But remember, I mean, of our patients don't have family doctors. That's as a provincial standard. And and in a marginalized community, that might be even higher. So I never fault the patients. They don't have a place to go. They don't have anyone who can see them. So this is the default. I mean, you know, Mark, one thing I've always talked about between you and I as internists and emergency department physicians is we're 24-7, 365. Like that's the motto. We've become availabologists is a great word that I've learned, is is we're just so available that people come to see us because everyone else has a voicemail on their message that says, if you feel like you have an emergency, please go to your nearest emergency.
1: I don't have that voicemail. I am the emergency. Well, and then all those things that we've come up with, like the trackers and the websites, I think most hospitals have means of allowing the public to look at how busy a department is, I've spoken to patients who would look at that and say, you know, this is a good time to go and I can get seen quicker. I called my primary care provider and they're not available until tomorrow. So I'm just going to show up at four in the morning because there's no wait and be seen. So what you see at four in the morning or five in the morning, you can't say this waits until eight o'clock till the rest of the world is awake. But if someone's there at five in the morning with, for all intents and purposes, a non-emergency, right, a cut or a bruise, you still have to see them at five in the morning. I mean, patients are seen based on their acuity, So at
0: five in the morning, emergency department coverage amongst physicians tends to be the thinnest. So people are seen, the sickest will be seen first, but everyone gets seen who registers. The time in which it takes to be seen is based on your scoring system, based on your triage score assigned to you about how long you should wait. But there's no doubt there's a geography where people go, and there's also an institution where people go. Sometimes people will leave one hospital and come to another hospital because they perceive the care to be different or better, or worse, or who knows. But certainly where these trackers that you mentioned, they certainly redirect care. And sometimes I look at people's postal code and I say, you've driven a long way to come here. And it's just a sign of a system. People are rational. They will go to where their needs are best met in a timely fashion. And that's getting harder and harder to find.
1: So in our system, which is publicly funded, where there's no cost to going across the street to an emergency department that has a shorter wait time or has better posters right outside their emergency department, you know, individuals aren't penalized. They don't have to pay to come in. Anyone can go anywhere at any time of the day and get registered, provided they have their OHIP card, which is our uh, publicly funded healthcare system card. Do you think that would change if people were charged $30 to walk in the door just like they would at a nightclub or something? Okay, so now you're getting controversial with user fees, and we'll talk about it. But I just had to correct
0: you based on what you just said. You don't need an OHIP card to come to a hospital. In fact, working downtown, it might be that 15 to 20% of your patients don't have an OHIP card. And in those situations, and again, a lot of these are Ontario residents who just haven't had the means to go to Service Ontario and get their OHIP card renewed, This is a free visit by the government because if you don't have an OHIP card, the healthcare workers don't get paid. So people don't need an OHIP card to come see you. That's the ideal situation, but that's not the reality. That's one point. User fees, controversial take. Hard to say your opinion on any podcast on that. But I do believe that um, that would solve some problems, but it would also create additional problems. So
1: it's hard to say the jury's out on this one. We have a unique system. So do you have a good understanding of the uh, American insurance-based system? Like, would you not get seen in an American emergency department if you did not have insurance? I think it would be a lot of
0: pay-up-front kind of stuff. Or, you know, they use a lot of collection agencies to that are much more aggressive than our hospital collection agency. No collection agency is going to come off after a homeless person who doesn't have a phone and doesn't have means to even send a bill to. So those are just lost Revenues And these are people that uh, really need health cards badly because the challenge is, the emergency department doesn't turn anyone away we easily see anyone who registers and funding's not really something we think about. The problem is outpatient specialty referral. Like if I refer them to your ambulatory internal medicine clinic or your neurology clinic or your neurosurgery clinic, where it's not a true emergency, a lot of these providers just aren't seeing non-OHIP patients. So then that person's healthcare
1: journey is totally damaged. So you mentioned the word true emergency and I think that's something that we all have a personal kind of opinion or take on. I know for myself as an internist, when I get called at midnight for a patient on the ward having chest pain or having some heartburn, There's a different spectrum of what I feel an emergency is, right? What's going to wake a doctor up out of bed and have them go assess someone at midnight? And you identified people coming into the emergency department in ambulances as having true emergencies. Is that what an emergency is? Like true emergency are people who get brought in on a stretcher in an ambulance? Or what's your definition of that? No, and I think to that point, one has to realize
0: is the way that you come in has nothing to do with the likelihood of you getting to bed or being seen sooner. All patients are triaged regardless of their modes of initial transportation. I think emergencies, look, people don't read the book. People don't know medicine. You and I have studied a long time to know what an emergency is, and patients don't know these things, and sometimes you have people who walk in having a stroke or walk in having a heart attack, and those are always more unique when than when we get a heads up saying we're bringing in someone who's having a stroke and we get told about it with a bit of warning. So true emergency is probably a relative term. I think emergency has become a misnomer. I think it is an available place to get medical care 24-7 and the nurses do a wonderful job in telling the healthcare providers who needs to be seen next, who has the greatest sense of urgency for which their treatment is important. But Mark, I think the really sad thing, and and, you know, I think a lot of healthcare people look at stories in the news that says this person died in the waiting room or something like that. and, And we're kind of all waiting for this terrible catastrophe to happen before we change our healthcare system. I think people have to realize that every single shift at every single day, I have people in the waiting room who I know Had I seen them sooner and got them to see you sooner or a surgeon sooner, maybe their care would be better and maybe their outcomes would be better. And the fact that they didn't die in the waiting room, they don't become a published, sensationalized Toronto Star editorial. But I know and you know that person with the high lactate, that high troponin, so they're having a heart attack, their high white blood cell count, their low electrolyte those people will suffer by not getting timely care. And they're sitting in our waiting room every single
1: day. And so you mentioned that the training has changed and how historically emergency medicine doctors were primary care providers. And I read some books by Greg Isles. I don't know if you've read him. He writes these kind of like Mississippi murder mysteries, you know, that kind of legal thrillers. And one of his main uh, protagonists is the doctor who walks around with the black handbag and does home visits and delivers babies and, you know, will repair a bad laceration and come to your house if you've fallen off a ladder. And so the historical training of a primary care provider was somebody who did everything, right? And that, you know, when we think about a doctor in the 1920s or 1890s, it's that person there with the black handbag with all their tools. And so what you're saying is a primary care provider, so someone who could do everything Right? many years ago, would see people in their office and then attend to patients in the emergency department and uh, would be able to have that discretion about, you know, this is something that we can follow in the office or perhaps just see me in the office, not in the emergency room. You know, this is something I can deal with there. That used to be who staffed the emergency departments. But then you mentioned that the training changed. And I know that the training for an emergency medicine doctor includes a five-year training program in Canada, right? A lot of people still do primary care, which is a two-year year training program and all of those things while baby visits, ambulatory work, you know, obstetrical management, but then they do an extra year of training in emergency medicine uh, versus people who do five years of emergency medicine training. Do you know what led to that shift in training? Like at what point did we say, you know what, it's a separate specialty. We need to have five years of emergency training for, you know, ruptured eyeballs and kind of popped aortas and that. When did it change and why did it change? So I think the way you kind of pictured this Marcus Welby or this character
0: of the black bag, which I got one of those from my grandfather for graduation, which I still carry with me when I go see my parents if they're unwell. The Jill or Jack of all trades stock really still exists in small towns and places probably not too far where you live, where uh, family physicians do a lot more as opposed to just being a referral-based specialty. I think in Canada, emergency medicine is really about 50 years old or just coming to that. In the late 70s, you started to have programs at a royal college level. I think emergency medicine in, in the UK and the US are kind of the oldest systems. And if you look at kind of where emergency medicine started, UK, US, and then France, Australia, and Canada are kind of like the five oldest programs and I may be wrong exactly. And then it's now just opened up in Europe. I think what the pressures were a long time ago is emergency medicine historically used to be a specialty where you just kind of threw interns in the room and you said, you run this overnight, you're just kind of a surgeon who doesn't have a a job or a family doctor doesn't have a job and just kind of plug a hole. And then the specialty evolved. And it's been really nice in my 20 years to see the evolution of the specialty in Canada. And there are two streams. I think it's important to recognize. There's a Royal College stream, which is five years. Then there's a family medicine stream, which is three years. And then in a lot of small towns where they have neither nor, it's... You're a family physician, you have two years. I mean, Mark, historically, family physicians had one year. They did a rotating internship. They didn't do a family medicine residency. And then they just did everything and they learned by fire. So things have evolved. And what's been really cool is to see how the specialty has evolved. Like when I first started, we didn't do what we do now. We didn't put people to sleep. We didn't run resuscitations. We didn't do intubations. It's just changed so much. And I have a great story to tell you about that if you have a listen, if you want to hear. Tell me. I remember seeing one of my colleagues and, and she's a specialist in the hospital. And, you know, sometimes you see people and you can tell they're not at work. They're in civilian clothes. And I said to her, I said, what's up? Are you okay? Or, you know? And she said, ah, oh, you know, my dad's here. He has um, atrial fibrillation. And I said, okay, well, have you been seen? No, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I can probably get one of my cardiology friends to help. And I said, well, let me come help. And I saw her father and I realized she was in atrial fibrillation. I gave her a medication, which is about 60% effective, to try to break it, and it didn't work. And then 10 minutes later, I gave her some electricity to cardiovert her and put her back in a normal rhythm. And, you know, she was an 80-year-old woman or whatnot. And at the end of the day, one hour after she arrived, I had already done a chemical cardioversion, electrical cardioversion, started her on a blood thinner, started her on a blood pressure med, and had her ready to be discharged. And the doctor looked at me and she said, and she was a cardiologist, and she said, do you know what you just did? And I'm like, no, what? She's like, well, I was planning on having this, my dad or mom get, directly admitted to cardiology. They would have an anesthesia consult. They would then go to a special room where they would be assessed. They would be put to sleep and maybe tomorrow they would be able to be cardioverted, what you just did, and then sent home the following day. In one hour, you just did everything. I'm in disbelief. I kind of just kind of shrugged and I said, as much as I care about you and love you, I do this every day for everyone. We've kind of taken on a role of sedation, cardioversion, that the specialty didn't have the power and privileges of doing 30 years ago, 20 years ago. In the old days, we would have called cardiology or we would have called anesthesia. Now we have, as I said, the 15 most interesting minutes of every other specialty. We've taken
1: the good stuff and we've provided good care. And that's how the specialties evolved. So before I ask about uh, the specific components of the training, I just wanted to ask, when you mentioned the family member who's in civilian clothes who works in healthcare, what's your gut reaction when you walk into the room and a family member is there wearing their ID badge from a hospital? right, as announcing themselves as I'm a healthcare worker, right, so treat me differently. Or to the family member who the first question they ask is, what is your name? And they write it down and they ask if they can record. So what's your gut reaction and how do you manage a patient interaction where it starts, not with an interaction with the patient, but with a family member sort of declaring their authority?
0: (laughs) My gut is probably similar to yours. I mean, look, what my job has become is about managing expectations, I've kind of seen it all i've kind of become a cynical doc after all these years that i treat people the same way to me the squeaky wheel has never got the grease people who are sweet and respectful and treat me well and treat our healthcare team members well tend to get the best care in terms of the most compassionate care but look i understand the system in the old days, I used to kind of blame everyone. Now I just kind of blame the system. Like, people just want to advocate because they know how rough a ride they had. You know, in the old days, when I was younger and more opinionated, I'm still opinionated and I'm just wiser, people would complain about the times and and they would argue and they would complain in the nurses. And then I would tell them, you know, if you're upset, you should write a letter to your MP and your MPP and all this. Patients don't give a shit about politics. Like, I don't care. Like, now I've kind of just said, sorry you've had to wait so long. I'm Dr. Carr. Nice to meet you. How can I help you? Thanks for your patience. Because, you know, we're diffusing bombs every day. I understand what it would be like to wait. And the reality in my life is... If I had an emergency, I probably wouldn't be sitting in a waiting room for nine hours. I probably would be well looked after as a perk of my job of being seeing people who know me in a quicker, timelier fashion if I needed to see a specialist. So I'm sensitive to that. So the people who try to pull rank and ask if I'm related to this person or if I know that doctor, I don't really care. I kind of don't hear it. You know, the people who tell me they're personal injury lawyers when I'm uh, dealing with their chest pain, I
1: don't care. Like, I just treat patients. I'm not interested in games. So, have you lost your gusto? Like, you still seem quite passionate, and I've known you now for probably 12 years. And I think the first time I ever saw you, like, I've obviously listened to your lectures and I've heard you on podcasts and that. But when I see you in the department, you're never moping around with a sad face and kind of eye rolling. You're always into some kind of, you're either teaching the nursing staff or residents about something cool. You're looking at a cool chest x-ray. You excitedly pull me over to see a neat ECG. You generally come across as very motivated and excited. But when you describe the landscape of the emergency department and people waiting and kind of the job changing away from acute, the blood pumping emergencies to more social advocacy in that How do you keep your interest and passion? Like, how do you stay excited for that work 20 years into the game? I still love it.
0: I think people complain a lot, and it's kind of like the cancel culture that we have and the complaining nature that we have. And I don't want to speak generational, but I love what I do. I mean, I think about how I ended up in this specialty by Fluke and how it's been an amazing career. And I just realized that in order to stay happy in anything you do, you really can't make your life miserable. You really can't sweat the small stuff and you really can't deal with things that you can't control. Like I do my best. I love my work. I love to teach, as you mentioned. And if there's five people in the rating room or 20 or 30, like there are systems issues that I can't control. I'm just one person trying to do my best to be a good doc and a good teacher. And I don't get bogged down by a system that's failing. I'm not a chief of department. I'm not a hospital CEO. My job is to provide everything excellent, compassionate care and to teach residents and to provide the training for the next generation of residents, it's kind of not my problem. I hate to be that way, but at the end of the day is that's the only way to stay passionate, ignited, and provide great care is not to be paralyzed. There's lots of people who are paralyzed by, oh my God, I can't have beds. There's nowhere to see them. And they just sit and mope. You know, I have to be creative. It means I'll have to see you there. I'll order some tests and I'll go see you in a corner. I have kind of pivoted to the environment that I work in. But as you said, I don't sit around and mope because. That just doesn't make me happy. And if you're not happy in your job, you're not happy in your life.
1: Isn't there a tipping point though? And we, like during COVID, when we had uh, health and human resource shortages, we didn't have enough nurses. And I know up in the rural environment I work, we almost shut down our emergency department a few times. And some of the other smaller emergency departments were actually shut down, not enough nursing staff to staff them. If you look at your helpers, right? Healthcare is a team-based effort. If the nursing contingency dropped by half, if all of those other people that you mentioned, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, uh, personal support workers, the custodial staff, if half of them were able to work, and if the waiting room doubled, like, wouldn't there be a tipping point where you said, you know what? This is just such an awful environment that I'm not happy to work here. I'm walking into the room and seeing people who are dead, right? Is there a tipping point? I think for there's tipping for it for everyone. And it's very different. And
0: to think that we didn't have a lot of casualties, be it in the form of early retirement, career change, burnout, medical leave, not even talking about the externalities of COVID and long COVID and all the stuff that affected lots of our staff. I mean, there is no doubt that you go to battle with that team. And you know, when I walk into recess, and I don't know the names of the, the teammates that I'm fighting with because they're all agency staff or, you know, a psychiatry nurse or a urology nurse like that affects me. And everyone has a different tipping point. Fortunately, I feel like I'm pretty resilient. I love what I do and I do my best. I haven't hit that tipping point. I don't think I will, but I know lots of people have. Life is very different now in the same way that when new grads come, they don't work as many shifts as some of the older docs, some of the older people in our hospital work the most, which is different because they're in a cycle of their life that you actually think they should not be saving but spending and they work differently. I don't know what to tell you. It's been a rough few years. It hasn't been longevity for Everyone. And if you look at emergency medicine, there was an article in JAMA Today, 63% burnout rate in emergency medicine It is the number one specialty for burnout. And that is evidence-based. So I feel privileged and fortunate I'm not burnt out, but I'm an anomaly in that respect, and the evidence would suggest that.
1: Well, those high burnout rates, I reflect on some statistic, I don't know if this is true or false, that the average uh, career lifespan of an emergency medicine specialist is something like 7.2 years before they move on to administration or doing office work. Is the burnout just because of the environment? Are the people who choose or self-select emergency departments work prone to burnout? Or is it the shift work? Like, what is it? I think it's probably shift work. I think the 24-7, 365
0: mantra is not great. I remember being on a Saturday out with my wife and and seeing friends and having to leave at 11 o'clock because I had a shift at midnight. And friends would remark, oh, I guess you won't have to do that when you're older. And the reality is, no, you kind of work evenings, nights, and weekends until you're a set age. So I think the environment is unique. I think any specialty that is shift work and has disadvantaged hours eventually leads to a change in careers. But I think the most unique thing is, is I can tell you, I don't have a single colleague who does pure emergency. Like everyone has a side gig because you have to find a way to have a sustainable relationship with your partner, a good parent if you have children, and uh, working evening nights and weekends can get in that way. So people often take a second job that's not emergency medicine that has a Monday to Friday 9 to 5 gig that uses emergency medicine skills but doesn't have emergency medicine hours of inconvenience. So I think that, to me, has been my recipe to avoid burnout. But I think it's just a hard job to do full-time emergency medicine and nothing else because the job is much harder than it
1: used to be. Well, in that feeling, when you describe being at dinner with your partner and with friends, yeah, I've been working for 12 years, working in a rural hospital now. I do uh, week-long stretches of being on call, which means that I generally have to go in for about 8 to 12 hours a day and uh, see patients, not who I'm responsible for, but I'm consulting on, and uh, have to come in for anything that the phone rings me on that I need to drop what I'm doing and perhaps a sick patient in the ICU who I'm responsible for. But there's that kind of dark cloud that sits over my head. When I'm doing my day, I'm at, you know, skating lessons with the kid. I'm meeting friends for lunch, but I know I have to go to the hospital. I know at three o'clock or four o'clock, I'm going to have to go in. I'm going to be there for seven or eight hours. I might just get called randomly. And even though I've been in the game for a long time, That dark cloud is still there. It's a little bit smaller than it used to be. You know, I'm just used to just going in and doing my shift. Has that gone away for you? Like when you're out having fun, but you're looking at your watch because you know everyone else is going to, you know, have a few drinks and go home and go to bed. But you're going to be going home, putting on scrubs and going in to do an eight hour shift overnight where who knows what you're going to see. Like, do you still feel that kind of heart sink and dark cloud? Or are you excited? No, I mean, I'm on call today, and that's the reason we're
0: taping at 9 in the morning, because I'm on call for volume on Monday, which is our busiest day of the week. And I know at 9 or 10 o'clock tonight, when we hit a certain number of like 35 to be seen or 24, depending on the wait times and all that, they might need backup. And it's kind of frustrating that... I'm back up because our system is failing, because it's not funded to staff appropriately, because our other physicians don't work after hours and don't provide coverage. It's kind of challenging. You know, I'm married to an internal medicine specialist like yourself who has a similar career working in a community hospital. And uh, both of us have just talked about, like, we just kind of want to have Christmas and New Year's off like everyone else. But we don't. And when you're a hospital-based physician, as you and I are, and my wife is as well, we don't get Christmas and New Year's off. You're kind of stuck working one of them guaranteed every year. We don't get summers off. We just want to have a normal life like our friends sometimes. And and I think that's the challenge with medicine is, uh, and, you know, I think you see this where I have kids who are older than yours, Mark, who are off at university now. And uh, I think the children of physicians... They kind of see their parents and it's not necessarily like, I want to be a doctor like mom or dad anymore. Our kids have seen what COVID was like for us. And they've kind of said like, I want to be an engineer. I want to do something different. It's just a different time. And I think the next generation will be
1: different. I hate three-day weekends and I hate the Easter four-day weekend. My wife's an eMERGE nurse and every long weekend, one of us is working. So One of us is stuck at home with many kids and nothing to do. And the other partner is working. And so I totally agree. And for a lot of people who get excited, you know, for March break and what are we going to do for the summer? It's more of a how am I going to find programs and things to put the kids in so that we can survive those long weekends and March breaks. And I totally agree The two weeks off at Christmas, at most it's maybe two days off for me. But then you have kids at home who are just kind of driving you crazy. And you feel guilty, right? Like you want to be at home spending time with them. And I, I'm sure your kids, when they were younger, I said the same thing that my kids seem to say to me is, why do you always have to go to work? You know, it's nighttime. Why do you have to go into work now? Or it's, it's not a school day. And those are difficult things to answer. So you mentioned that you ended up in emergency medicine by fluke. Is that just because you didn't have high enough grades to do internal medicine or you
0: know what? I really didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I, I think you kind of look at algorithms and I knew I was a generalist, which kind of meant I wanted to do family medicine or internal medicine or pediatrics or psychiatry. I certainly wasn't a surgeon. And then I realized somewhere along the line that I really liked internal medicine, and I loved internal medicine, and I was making a plan to switch to internal medicine in the first year of my residency. And then I went to work in a community hospital in Midland, and I met a doctor, his name's Dave Bayfield, and uh, Dave was an emergency doctor. I had never wanted to do emergency medicine, I thought he was just so cool, the skill set that he posed, the calmness in the face of a storm, that anything could walk in at any time and he was posed to deal with it. And uh, I really was inspired. And then I was kind of late in the game. Emergency medicine wasn't something that I had looked at or thought about, so didn't really get into a program or anything. And uh, then COVID hit. So this is 2002, three whatever. And uh, I volunteered in the emergency department to just look after sick patients because I found that caring for patients in a family medicine practice or something, I like the ones that went to emerge. So I volunteered during COVID. This was towards you know the spring and winter of, of my final year. I hadn't applied for an emergency medicine spot. And then a spot just kind of opened up for me to do emergency medicine. And I've always loved internal medicine. I think, look, by fluke, I've passively diffusioned. By marrying an internist, I've kind of kept some knowledge up. But I love to do internal medicine downstairs. And I would say that the best eMERGE docs have the best internal medicine knowledge. I'm biased and obviously I'm speaking to someone who might drink that Kool-Aid, but I love internal medicine. I think it's the basis of what we do. And uh, I remember being at Sunnybrook as a resident and just being totally enamored by morning reports by with Steve Schumach and Paulo and and people that I wanted that knowledge, that curiosity. And I made it into a career where I have very little attention span and it's probably the perfect career for me But uh, I love internal medicine. And that would be, you know, if I think if I had to do it again, maybe I would have done internal medicine and critical care. But I'm pretty happy with how I
1: got into where I did. I thought it just worked out well. So the training, you mentioned kind of liking everything, right? And that's what what drove me to general internal medicine is, is seeing it all. And in emergency medicine, you do see it all, right? You might see someone who's floridly psychotic and the next patient you see is a six-month-old. The patient after that is 104. So you're seeing everything. And you talked about how the training went initially from primary care training with an interest in emergency medicine to a formal five-year emergency medicine training program does the training program match what you're seeing though uh, when you talked about how it's changed and you know kind of seeing marginalized populations the advocacy role you have the percentage of quote unquote true emergencies does the training program gear people towards those kind of electrical shocks of atrial fibrillation and kind of gunshot wounds or does the training program after cover actually cover advocacy and working with marginalized populations homelessness food insecurity etc I mean, we can
0: have a whole debate over the CanMeds role, but I don't, I don't think we want to go there here. But I, I think the training has always been about trying to prepare people to deal with emergencies, whether it's in orthopedics, neurology, plastic surgery, cardiology, internal medicine, general surgery. So we're taught there about all the emergencies, toxicology, and then you kind of learn. The other stuff. I think that's kind of how it is. And I think everyone has a niche. Like, I kind of like cardiovascular killers. Some people like um, equity and advocacy work and uh, addictions work, and some people like orthopedics. So, within emergency medicine, people subspecialize in terms of an academic niche. But the training has evolved subtly, but you still have the same textbooks that cover the material. I mean, whether you're practicing emergency medicine in Turkey or in uh, Africa or in Canada, like the patients still have the same diseases. There are some regional specifics, but you have to know everything. And uh, that textbook's still the same size. It has the same conditions. There's not many new conditions. In the 20 years, not too many. Right. So you still have to know that. I think to be good at this job, you have to know how to run a department and how to advocate and how to help out and how to know how to get the resources to deal with people. And one of the reasons, Mark, we talked about careers. One of the challenges that one of the reasons I kind of left internal medicine to stay in in the family emergency medicine route is and I'm sure you have this, is that my wife will spend so much time seeing patients and meeting with a family and then at six o'clock her phone rings when she's already at home that there's another family member or a fourth family member who wants an update. I just couldn't deal with that. Like I couldn't deal with the constantly one patient taking up so much of your time nonstop for a whole week and getting involved all the ancillary supports. Like for me, I wanted to make a decision quickly. I wanted a blank canvas and I wanted a patient. And then when I'm done, I go home and there's nothing else happens. Now, I don't get uh, soprasata or uh, crushed red peppers for Christmas like my wife does. I get nothing. However, I'm okay with that. I mean, she has the continuity of patience. I don't. And that's one of the distinctions between your and my specialty. And you just have to, to live it and breathe it and be happy
1: with it if you've chosen wisely. It's funny, the choice of training. It's a little bit of a trick. You look at, we were booking a hotel to go to Disney World and it has this beautiful water slide and there's no lineup. And uh, that's why we picked the hotel. But then we get to Disney World and that water slide's only open on Saturdays for six hours. It's an extra $20 a person and there's a huge lineup. And it's like, man, like I booked this hotel because that water slide, the kids wanted to go on it all day. And it's kind of like our career training. When I you know, was interested in internal medicine, and we do smoke and mirrors, right? Morning report and all that, this weird vasculitis, right? Sarcoidosis, porphyria, stuff that I frankly see once every five years in my career. But that's why we did it, right? It's cool, it's neat, it's sexy. But when you look at what I do as an internist, it's actually helping older people who aren't doing well at home right? And uh, working with uh, older people who aren't doing well at home and their family members who are trying to figure out how to make it work or decide if that's not working and they're going to need to go somewhere else. But I think if you advertise internal medicine as that, I don't know if you'd have the same buy-in and the same for all careers, right? If you told a plastic surgeon, it's uh, wound care and, uh, you know, doing call seven times a month, for random things and having to run busy clinics, I don't think most plastic surgeons would be attracted to the sexiness of that career. So it's quite interesting the reality behind what is advertised, but we all careers want to get good people, right? I want good residents. So if they think it's cool and exciting and they're gonna help me look after older people who aren't doing well at home, then that's great. So if you're taking your experience and uh, you're helping your friends and your community, right? True emergencies, the state of the emergency departments, uh, and this is in Canada. You know, most places in the world are having similar crises, but people sitting in waiting rooms for 10 hours, waiting to be seen, you know, coming home with sore backs from those stretchers. What advice would you give to people at home? about what constitutes an emergency, right? Recognizing this is not uh, medical advice, but when you call those hotlines or a closed primary care office, the blanket statement is, if you think it's an emergency, go in. What would you advise people to do at home if they're debating whether or not they should go to the emergency department?
0: Yeah, it's probably very uh symptom-specific. I mean, Telehealth Ontario is a free resource that people can call to get a sense. But unfortunately, advice dispensed over the phone often is very litigious-based in that errs on the side of caution. I think signing up for a primary care provider that has extended hours, I think there are certain things that typically can't wait, chest pain, neurological complaint, any pain that's the the most pain you've ever had in your life, or a child that's very lethargic and drowsy, people have had seizures... But very specific, and we probably need to do a better job in terms of having a step-down. You know, in internal medicine, there's like a step-down unit between the ICU and the internal medicine where people who are sick, and I think we need to have step-down urgent care clinics with extended hours where people who are like, you know what, I, I think this is more of an urgency than an emergency, and I, I would love to be able to go see someone because, you know, my blood pressure, I went to Shoppers Drug Mart and my blood pressure's high and I feel okay, I, should I be worried? worried about this. And maybe that's something that obviously can wait, but maybe that doesn't need an emergency. Maybe that has urgency. So I think we need to have some sort of thing in the middle that allows people to decant the emergency departments. But I I think the other thing is, and, and look, rural where you practice and you're not in the most rural situation, you're in a well-staffed hospital with most specialty coverage for the most part, is that it's really difficult to get people access in rural communities. And, you know, you keep hearing about emergency departments closed in rural areas is a real sad state. And, uh, I don't know how to solve the problem, but I think what has to be stated is the problem in emergency medicine is not people coming to the emergency department when they shouldn't need to. That's not the problem. That's not why you're waiting. The reason you're waiting is because the patients who get admitted to your service have nowhere to go, and they take up valuable hospital resources because we don't have enough long-term care and retirement home options for patients. It's not what comes in that screws me up. It's what doesn't come out. And the reason why you spend so much time in the emergency department is because your admitted patients have nowhere to go upstairs because there are no beds. It's not because someone came in because their backs hurt for six months. That's not why you and I have problems. It's that the cargo has nowhere to go and that needs to be fixed Less emphasis needs to be on inappropriate use of the emergency department and more has to be focused on how do we look after patients? Why do we have so few
1: hospital beds per our population? So it's funny because my advice has now changed. When people ask me if they're debating going, I do the same thing. It's very hard to tell on a text message because most of the time it's a text message, like a picture of a rash, right? And I don't have the context. Does your kid have a fever? Or are they throwing up? Or are they immune suppressed? And so the advice is generally, if you think it's an emergency, go get checked out, right? But my advice on top of that is bring an iPad with good batteries, bring a sleeping mask, bring a pillow bring some snacks and food because I think every patient that I see in the emergency department complains about how uncomfortable they are, how they can't sleep and how awful the food is. And so my advice has gone to accepting this as a new reality. I don't know if you're doing the same thing, but uh, that's what I've been giving patients here. But that whole kind of litigious aspect. So in the States, you know, where you got, uh, you know, Barnes and Barnes and Johnson, like suing you ambulance chasers, right? We don't have that in Canada by and large, but people can pursue legal action Action. But what I've experienced in the system and, and, and reading in physicians who got into trouble, right, the dialogue in the CPSO, by and large, you have to be grossly negligent to be found culpable or to have to pay a stiff penalty. So our culture is not as litigious, but we still act that way right? There's still a fear fear of retribution that sometimes motivates our practice. How do you manage that? And what is the reality of that in the emergency department? Are all of your friends getting sued all the time? So a big part of my practice is
0: actually doing medical legal work as an expert witness assessing care. And I was the director of risk management at UHN in the emergency department. So dealt with patient complaints. So a lot of what I deal with is about you know, try to improve patient care through learning, through uh, medical error and bounce backs. I think the reality is society is catching up to America. Emergency medicine has the highest litigation rate of any non-surgical specialty. And uh, about 15 years ago, the statistics were an emergency physician gets sued every seven years. It's probably closer to five years now. And I think a lot of that reflects the frustration that people have in the system because, you know, if you uh, take on a patient who's already waited nine hours to be seen, you, they're already disgruntled. And if something doesn't go right, they're much more apt to complain about you, whether it's about attitude or negligence, or if something goes wrong or they felt that it could have been diagnosed sooner, they cast a blame. And a lot of these are avoidable things if they had access to timely care, be it in the primary care, specialty care. So I think it has become a society where a lot of us worry about that. And a lot of decisions and testing is sometimes, you know, we always want to rule out the most sinister, but I think some of that's governed by fear. And you can always tell a, a colleague who's been recently sued because you'll see a change in their practice Well, there'll be ordering an insurmountable amount of CT scans to diagnose conditions where good clinical bedside medicine would say that person doesn't need that test. But once they've been burned and they're afraid of missing it, it changes practice. So I I do think medical litigation hangs over the hat of many of my colleagues. Emergency medicine is a one-touch specialty it's not like you say someone in an ambulatory clinic you order some tests you bring them back next week you have a chance you know you're meeting someone for the first time who you've never met who you don't know who they are in their most stressful time and we have to judge those people for a living I mean 10 people can have chest pain and only one of those 10 actually needs to come into the hospital so how do we judge that and uh you know, no one's perfect. And if you see, as I said, 20 to 50 patients, 15 times a month for 20 years, unfortunately there is going to be misses. And it's just the reality of this game. And you just hope that you do no harm, but it's kind of a sad state is that some presentations of diseases are very atypical. And, uh, you just miss it. I mean, it's so sad. I mean, even this now I'm reading all in the paper about invasive group A strep and how I think eight or 12 kids in Ontario have died from October till January. And it's like, that's crazy. And then you hear about friends who've had, know someone who have died from invasive group A strep. And these are people who went to an emergency department a lot of times. And there are just some conditions that it's really unfortunate that. They just don't present that easily to diagnose. And sometimes by the time they diagnose, it's too late. So yes, we're often afraid. It has crept into our practice. We're moving towards America. We're not as bad. That's a
1: mouthful you can't do what you used to do now that we have all these uh, dictation and uh, documentation tools where you can actually read what you're thinking, but you can't just kind of scribble it at the bottom of a note so that no one can really understand what you were thinking. But you have to be very clear and articulate in your decision making and also acknowledge that all of those notes are out there for everyone to see, including patients and family members. So thank you so much for being on the show today and for walking us through the state of emergency in Ontario, Canada the world what it's like to live your job the kind of stresses the highs and lows associated with that the training that goes into it the current state and perhaps the future loved it so that was awesome thank you Dave thanks for having
0: me Mark and I hope it wasn't too macabre and it's a wonderful career and I I wouldn't change a thing and I love every minute of it and it's like anything that has its ups and downs
1: but thanks for shooting the shit with me and chatting about it today Don't change. We both have jobs where we work with, uh, you know, kind of driven and intellectual people. We see neat stuff. We're helping people every day. That's great. And that hasn't changed, even though the environment has. And uh, I have the same enthusiasm as you. And I think don't forget the fact that uh, your enthusiasm touches many trainees and will motivate them to be the same. So I think it's important to do that, especially given that our, our career training is largely an apprenticeship. So thank you. Thanks for taking the time today. Pleasure. Awesome. What an insightful and interesting conversation that just was with Dr. David Carr. If anything, it gives further credence to my belief that we need to change the name from emergency department to place you go when you need help 24-7. We won't turn you away. We'll listen to you and we'll try to sort you out. Because what I learned is that emergencies are very subjective. If a baby is having a nosebleed, that's an emergency. That's scaring the parents. The baby is helpless. The baby needs help. But if a hockey player gets in a fistfight on the ice and gets a nosebleed, well, they suck it up, buttercup, and they put some Kleenex on their nose, and they lean their nose forward, applying pressure to the bridge, and they stop the bleeding maybe they meet with their trainer but not they're not coming into an emergency department to get help but who are we to judge what an emergency is because that experience is very subjective it's very personal i see a lot of patients at extremes of age geriatric patients who come into the emergency department because they're just not doing well at home they can't reach the grab bars in their bathrooms they can't press the call bells that they have placed around their neck in case they slip and fall at home They're not able to care for themselves or get the food that they need. That's an emergency for them and for their loved ones. And so they come in to get help. And so it was really sobering to learn about the fact that emergencies are very subjective. Everyone experiences them differently. And there doesn't really seem to be a quick fix to the clogging that we're experiencing in the Canadian healthcare system. I also felt it was really important to learn about some of the impacts that this career has on emergency department physicians and all people who work in that environment. In fact, this is a fast paced, emotionally laden environment. We are seeing people having their worst day possible, people as sick as anything, people who are very emotional, people who are very upset. And we're all doing that in a very crowded and impersonal environment. So hearing about some of the things that contribute to burnout, hearing about how difficult it is to balance this type of shift work with your family commitments and personal commitments, that was really sobering and eye-opening. I hope that all of you in the listening audience took something home from this conversation today. learned something about the emergency departments in general, about what emergencies look like and about the life and times of a busy emergency medicine physician. As always, I want to give a shout out to my production team, my engineer, and to our guests for taking time out of their busy day to partake in these candid one-on-one conversations with me on Ditch the Lab Coat. Thanks again to all of you for listening, and looking forward to seeing you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Ditch the Lab Coat with Dr. Bonta, the home of science-based skepticism. Tune in next Wednesday for another healthcare conversation. For more information, please visit labcoat.fm.